You're listening to The Vine Podcast, episode number 21. In today's episode, I'm sharing how you can have a unique voice on your food blog and still make Google happy. You don't have to pick between building a unique brand and working towards improving your SEO. You love the time you get to spend creating content on your blog and connecting with your audience. But building a brand and working on your website, that's where it can feel overwhelming. With all of the lists out there of everything that you should do, sometimes you just feel like giving up. But friends, there's a better way. When you spend time strategically thinking about your blog, you'll discover what is essential to build a successful and sustainable business and what's not. I'm your host, Madison Weatherill, a WordPress web designer and branding strategist for food bloggers. I'm here to help you think strategically about the brand you're building, connect with your ideal audience, and ultimately convert them into raving fans, the ones who actually make your recipes, interact with you, and make this whole food blogging journey worth it. It's time to design a business you love and remember why you started a blog in the first place. Hey friends, I am really excited to share today's episode with you. It is actually an interview I did for the Eat Blog Talk podcast a few weeks ago, and I've gotten such great feedback from Megan's listeners that I really wanted to share it with you guys as well. In this episode, you'll hear me talk about how important it is to define your unique voice and to use it on your blog. We can make Google happy by optimizing our websites and our blog content without losing our brand's personality in the process. There's a really dangerous trend that I've been seeing where food bloggers in general follow what other food bloggers are doing, using the same layouts and themes and SEO steps to satisfy Google, and food blogs are all starting to look the same. So it's really important to remember what your brand messaging is and not to get lost in a sea of bloggers. Now, I also want to remind you, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Next week, I am making a huge announcement and I don't want you to miss it. There's also a freebie in this episode that I mention, and this is my brand identity framework that I walk my clients through when I work with them on custom web design or branding. You can download that free guide by going to thevinepodcast.com slash zero two one. Okay, let's dig into this interview by Megan Porta of Eat Blog Talk. What's up, food bloggers? Welcome to Eat Blog Talk, the podcast made for food bloggers who are seeking value for their businesses and their lives. Today, I'll be having a discussion with Madison Weatherill from graceandvinestudios.com, and we will talk about how to maintain your unique voice on your blog while still making Google happy. Madison is a food blogger turned web designer running Grace and Vine Studios. She helps her clients connect with their audience through strategic web design and brand strategy. She is also the host of the Vine podcast, a podcast about strategy and design for food bloggers. She lives with her husband and two little boys in Phoenix, Arizona. I love this topic, Madison, and I just feel like it's a really relevant one, so I'm excited to dig into it. But before we do that, give us a quick fun fact about yourself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. So my fun fact is that my husband and I actually live in my great-grandparents' house, which was built in 1959, and they pretty much didn't update a single thing after they built it. So when we moved in, we tore it down to the studs and renovated the entire thing. So in total, there's been 10 people in my family that have lived in that house. Oh my goodness. You just can't get rid of something like that. Exactly. A family family relic that you live in. That's so cool. Yes. But it does not feel like 1959 anymore. (laughs) Oh, sure. I mean, if you take it down to the studs and rebuild, I'm sure it's pretty updated. (laughs) Yeah, we love it. 
That's awesome. Well, let's get on to our main topic because I'm really excited to dig into this. Maintaining our voices on our blogs while also keeping Google happy. I think it's such a fine line that we walk these days, right? We want to express our voices and our writing and in the way that we portray ourselves on our blogs, yet we also want to please Google and ultimately the user. So the constant running question is how do we do all of the above? Talk us through the importance of finding that brand and messaging that we can use to uniquely express who we are through our blogs. And also, how do we do this? Right. So, and I love that you mentioned that, you know, we're trying to make Google happy and we're also trying to make our users happy. And I think sometimes we, food bloggers tend to get frustrated because we're trying to please Google, but we forget that Google is actually thinking about our user and that's, that's their main priority. So really this brand messaging is, kind of your niche and your voice, and it's your story. So I like to say that your niche is way more deep than that you're a food blogger. I think that's kind of where people stop. And then sometimes people will say the specific type of recipes that they share. But I like to take my clients one step deeper. And that is kind of why, you know, in a sea of food bloggers that might share the same kind of recipes that you share, what makes you unique? And that that really is your story and your philosophy of cooking and, basically the reason behind why you do what you do. And so I think when you get to the heart of that, it's a lot easier to recognize not only what makes you unique in, you know, a crowded sea of food bloggers, but it also helps you to figure out how you can stand out and how you can connect with your ideal audience. You know, and I think the thing is when we're all using kind of the same themes and following all the rules for SEO, we start to kind of all look the same. And I think that's kind of a dangerous trend that's been happening in the food blogging world. So I think remembering this brand messaging and then trying to incorporate it into your website and building a unique website is just so important these days. What are some other ways, aside from writing, that we can distinguish ourselves and our brands? And also, does Google recognize anything outside of writing, do you think? There's a lot of visual elements that come into play. Um, if you're talking about the website specifically, there's there's a lot of different things that you can do on your website to kind of stand out. Aside from the writing portion, you know, I know there's kind of that trend of people being frustrated when food bloggers tell stories and things like that. But I think really the reason that people get frustrated with that is that there's no connection with the recipe itself. So you're telling a story about going to the grocery store or going to soccer practice, but you're not connecting it to the recipe itself and like how that ties in. So that's what I think frustrates people. But I do think, you know, people can use things like email marketing and even Instagram stories to really differentiate themselves. And, you know, cause I know writing is not a strong suit for some food bloggers and they're really more interested in just sharing their content and sharing the recipe. I think photography can be a huge way to differentiate yourself and kind of stand apart from the crowd. So I think there's really a lot of things that we can do besides just the writing. But I think when you have that brand messaging foundation, it helps you to figure out what all of those other pieces are going to look like and feel like. And I think the feeling is a really important thing to remember because it isn't always just like that something looks a certain way, but it's how does that make your audience feel seeing a photo that has a certain styling or you know, seeing you talk about or hearing you talk about rather something on Instagram stories that kind of relates to your brand messaging. All of those things make your audience feel a certain way. And that's really what you're trying to get out of your audience is for them to feel something and connect with you. It is all about the emotion, right? I mean, it's like that with everything. The more emotionally tied you are to something, the more you feel connected. And I also like the 
fact that you pointed out that it's kind of trending right now that people are overall frustrated with food bloggers. I mean, I just saw on Instagram the other day, there's an actual meme for this and I can't remember exactly what it said, but the general idea was like, get to the recipe already. Stop telling us about your grandma's casserole or whatever. And I was like, Hey, I know I saw the same thing and it was perfect timing, but yeah, I think, I think it's just that people, everybody is busy, right? And we have to realize that we have like a hot second to convert somebody from Google or Pinterest to actually sticking around for longer than just enough time to read the recipe card. And I think when we, again, going back to like all the sites and logos and everything looking the same, it's like no wonder nobody's kind of standing out and that we're having a hard time converting people into a loyal audience but it's because we've like stripped away all of the personality and everything because we think people want that. But I think people are just looking for something that's presented in a different way where it makes sense that you're telling that story. This does allow for a lot of creativity, I think, because you're right. It, we all do kind of look the same. And I feel like we're all regurgitating the same information. And then we see one success and we think that we need to emulate that when in fact we should be doing kind of our own thing. And I think that's common, right? Because we see bigger blogs or a handful of bigger blogs and we want to be exactly like them because they've found success. But I so strongly believe like you do, Madison, that there's such immense value in doing your own thing and making your blog look unique and just kind of feel unique. So what are some ways that we can do this? Because I know we can be different with our writing. We can kind of set styles with photography and video even. And then you mentioned going across platforms too and um, being unique there. But do you have any other ideas for us? Yeah. So I think really the, the first thing that you have to do, and this is something I walk my clients through when I'm working with them with either branding or website design is really figuring out that brand messaging foundation. And I like to help my clients to figure out kind of what their core messaging is, because I feel like when you know those, maybe it's five to 10 little statements about things that you believe or why you share the type of recipes that you share or kind of things that your brand stands for even, it really helps you when you have that as the foundation to be consistent across the board. And so it makes it easier for you to get creative with sharing content or sharing tips, because I think so often we just share a bunch of tips that are relevant to that one recipe, but we forget that maybe there's a tip that would be relevant to your overall brand that's applicable to that one recipe. So as an example, if a client of mine is really focused on entertaining and she has the opportunity in pretty much every post that she does, or at least all the posts that are very obviously for entertaining to give an entertaining tip. There's a really easy way to do that now with Gutenberg where you can just kind of use a reusable block to kind of give yourself a little placeholder of where you can share kind of that brand messaging and apply it to the recipe. So you're not just giving a random tip about like what temperature does chicken need to be cooked to, you know, that might be important as well, but you're able to take it one step further and really connect your brand messaging to the recipe in a helpful tip, which is going to help like that small percentage of people that might be randomly finding your site connect with you on a deeper level. And honestly, it helps them to see themselves in your content. And they're like, Oh yes, I needed to know how I can double this recipe for entertaining. That's perfect. And then that you become that trusted source for them in the future. I love what you just said. It helps them to see themselves in your content. I think if we could all keep that in mind as we create everything, 
that would just make everything so much easier as far as distinguishing ourselves from others. And then also you mentioned earlier, what do you stand for? So if we can keep that question on our minds as we create, I think that we can more easily uh, set ourselves apart from others. But I just love those two things. What do you stand for and help people to see themselves in your content? That's awesome. <laughs> love it. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we forget that you know, we so often want to just make everybody happy, you know, Google and our users included. And we forget that one of the like key points of marketing is attract and repel. So your content, your website, your about page, all of those things should either attract the right people or repel the wrong people. And that sounds kind of like offensive in a way where you're like, well, I don't want to turn anyone away from my site, but if they're not the right person, if they're not your right audience, that's okay. And so again, when we get kind of cookie cutter with everything, when we all follow the same exact checklist for SEO and all of that kind of stuff, it's like, you're not going to attract or repel anybody. You're just going to maybe get an influx of Pinterest traffic here and there, or, you know, be ranking number one on Google, which those are obviously really, really important things. Like we all need traffic. We all need you know, page views so that we can make ad money. And I totally understand all of that. But I think we need to remember that for like long term, we need to make sure that we're also attracting people to become our audience. Like you said earlier, we don't need to attract everybody. Not everybody is going to be a good fit for us. And we're not a good fit for everybody else. So we don't need to be these like super pleasers. Like everybody who comes to our site is going to be happy because that's just not fair. It's not accurate. So I'm glad that you pointed that out too. Are there other ways that we can set ourselves apart? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different ways that you can, you know, optimize your content and your website specifically so that you can convert those organic traffic or convert that organic traffic into loyal readers. And there's a couple of different points here, but the first I think is creating really strategic freebies. And I think in order to be able to do this well, you first really have to know who your audience is and what they're struggling with. Because if you don't really understand who that person is, it's going to be really easy to just create something generic that you, you know, you're trying to build your audience, your email list. And so you create this generic freebie, hoping that you'll kind of pad your numbers for your email list. But what's then going to happen is you share an email down the road with a recipe that doesn't apply to that person, you're going to have a ton of unsubscribes. And so when you really are able to know your audience on a very intimate level, then you can know what they're struggling with and how you can help them. And you can create those freebies that are really going to resonate with them. And I think that's a really important part of figuring out your niche. And then obviously you need to display that freebie on your site and all of those sorts of things. So I think that's a really big place to start because that is one of the ways that you can really convert that SEO traffic or that Pinterest traffic into people that are going to see more than just that one post, which is something that I think all of us are trying to do. Seems like everything is coming back to this right now, not just on our blogs, but on Facebook, on Pinterest, in email marketing, on Instagram. It all comes down to really getting to know who your user is, who is diving into your content, who is loving you, and what do they need from you? What are they wanting? And I absolutely love that you said that if you deliver something that they're not wanting, they're not going to come back. And I think that we kind of disregard that and think that no matter what I make for my freebie, I'm going to put up a baking guide. Well, maybe my content or my audience doesn't like to bake. So that would be like a huge turnoff. I don't want your baking guide. I came here for comfort food. So it is really important that we tune in 
and really get to know what our user is wanting. So what are ways that we can do that real quick? I wish that there was an easier answer, like that it was a, a direct correlation from you know this to this. But I do think figuring out that niche at the very beginning, sometimes you kind of just have to speculate a little bit until you know your audience. So if you have a really engaged audience, this is a lot easier to do because you can just ask them. But if you don't, if you're if you have a newer blog or if you're really working you know, next year to convert more of that Google audience over to an actual engaged audience that subscribes to your email list and following you on social and eating up all of your content. I think you, you have to go with, okay, what am I specializing in? So use an entertaining example again. So for that client, her audience is someone who is looking to entertain, but they also happen to be moms. And so for her, she might think about what are they struggling with? Why are they struggling to entertain? And I think as food bloggers, we very quickly go to, oh, they need new recipes. They need more recipes that they can share. And that's a part of it. But I think you have to really think about okay, what is stopping them from even making the recipe in the first place? What is that gap in between them having this desire to do something and actually doing it? And so it could be a lack of time. It could be a lack of resources, could be a lot of things. But like I said, I think you kind of have to speculate a little bit and test the waters, which I think is hard for food bloggers in general, because, and I guess anyone really, we all are strapped for time, right? And so We want to make the biggest impact with the little amount of time that we have. And so it can feel really scary to kind of go outside of the food blog space for just a minute to kind of deliver content that might be a little bit different. You know, sharing a post that isn't a recipe like that is, you know, you feel like terrified that all of a sudden you're not a food blogger anymore. And, you know, and, and so there's ways that you can do this without it feeling like I'm completely changing gears. You can do it on Instagram stories and make it feel like you're just talking about your life because maybe you talk about how, you know, you have friends coming over this Thursday, but you're having a really hard time figuring out your menu for them to come over because X, Y, and Z is happening. And you can make it really casual and see if it resonates with people. I think sometimes we feel like we've got to change our entire content calendar to reflect this change. And really this thing, this stuff can be sprinkled in and you can really just see what happens. And it's kind of a long-term thing to figure out what's working. But again, I think when you know kind of the core of what your brand is, it's a lot easier to feel confident about sprinkling those things in. That is such an interesting concept. I loved that. It's so hard though to switch gears and hop out of being a food blogger because we're in it so much. As you know, I mean, you were a food blogger. It's all consuming sometimes, most of the time. So to switch gears and just hop out of that mode and become kind of like on the side of our user It's just like sometimes it seems impossible, but I can see where there would be huge value in that and where you could actually gain a lot of insight switching modes and showing that you are on the same side as them. Is that kind of what you're saying? Like I'm so I'm entertaining and I'm considering making this recipe and kind of showing that you're having the same struggles and seeing where they can relate to you. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of the times your ideal person, I've heard this said in different like marketing circles that sometimes your ideal person is you like two or three years ago. And so think back to what things were like for you then. And I think, again, without having kind of that core messaging of like why you even share the recipes that you share, it's kind of hard to you know, extrapolate like some of these thoughts and to share more than just like 
here's the tips for making this recipe the best way. It's, it's really hard to do that without having that foundation. So I think it's important to have that. And it's important to remember that not only are you talking to real people, but you're also a real person too. I think we try to like strip the humanity from our blogs and like, you're a real person and it might feel like nobody cares about, you know, your life or you sharing, but just found that that's generally not true. You might not have as much engagement, but oftentimes people tend to see a lot more engagement when they add their personality and even like a picture of themselves into things. And they're just the people that aren't being loud about it. We see the memes on social media that kind of hurt our hearts a little bit. Like, oh, I don't want to read that, but yeah, the people that are loud about it are the people who really don't care probably about our content. And the people who do care do enjoy and appreciate us engaging with them. So that's a good thing to keep in mind because I do think that we all feel like a little bit offended. Like, fine, you don't want my my stuff. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to become a robot. And then we start writing like everybody else. Like I think so often people are like, well, I'm just, you know, following my passion for my blog to make more money and to support my family. And those are all amazing goals. But like we all started a blog for the most part for some other reason. We didn't necessarily start it as a get rich quick scheme because let's be honest, there's a lot more ways to make money faster (laughs) than food blogging. Uh, Yes. I like the idea that you mentioned earlier. I want to cover this quick before we move on about just stopping and thinking about what is stopping people from making your recipe and going any further because a lot of people come to our sites and they're there for a couple seconds and then they click away. So just putting yourself in their shoes and figuring out what is the hang up? Why are people coming to this specific recipe and leaving? So I think that's a really good thing. So what are some other ways that we can optimize our content to convert organic traffic? I think really just planning your content in a more strategic way really will set the foundation for this over time to be more effective. And um, I actually have an episode of my podcast. It's episode number 13, where I kind of walk you through the process of planning out your content. And I specifically, it's for like next year, but it can really be used anytime that you're sitting down to plan some content ideas. And basically, I like to think of when you're trying to plan out your content strategically, you really have to start with what's already done well. And so I like to look at kind of your popular content from the year or, you know, from the last, let's say if you're planning for Q2, maybe you look at the last year during quarter two to see what did well during that time. And then once you know kind of what your popular content is, you can kind of think of your ideas in two different ways. So one set of ideas is going to be ideas that kind of pair well with that recipe that's already done well. And then the second set of ideas is going to be content that is kind of a spin off of the original post. So Megan, do you want to do this exercise real quick with one of your popular posts? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So what's one of your popular posts from this past year? So we could either go with something that's like on top three Google now, or that has been just overall really popular, but that is not top three right now. Give me whichever one you feel like is more true to your brand. Yes. Okay. So my goulash recipe. So if you were trying to think of an idea that would go with goulash, I would think of like other side dishes that might go well with goulash or other like comforting. Like one pan dishes maybe. So I would say like something that goes with goulash, I would say like breadsticks, a green salad, 
And then just going along along the theme of like similar meals, I would say like a one pot hamburger helper meal or maybe an instant pot spaghetti, you know, like a one pan comforting easy dinner. Yeah. And I think the interesting thing about, you know, looking at your content this way is you kind of are serving both audiences, both your Google audience and your loyal audience when you look at your content this way. Because let's say that someone's coming to your goulash recipe and they're coming from Google, you're going to be linking in that post to all of these other side dishes and extras that will kind of complete that meal. And then on the other side, you already know that your audience loves this goulash recipe. So you're going to create other content that serves them kind of like, let's say if it's a, is it a quick recipe, like a 30 minute goulash or is it kind of a longer? Nope. It's yeah. 30 minutes or less. Yeah. So if it's a 30 minute meal, you know that your audience is looking for kind of quick and easy, but comforting dishes. So you're going to come up with a couple of other ideas that are also quick and easy and comforting. And now you've kind of well-rounded out your content to where you have ideas that are going to serve both your like true audience and your Google audience. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You're thinking about like people who are coming just for the goulash. What goes with goulash? I want to make this meal, but I want to know what to serve with it. So you can kind of cover those bases. But then, like you said, rounding out like, okay, you like 30 minute meals, you like comfort food, maybe pasta, something with meat, and then adding that to my archives as well, just to kind of like give them other options. Yeah. And I, the other part of kind of this process is that I like to ask a couple of different questions about every idea. So I am like an ideas person. Like I can easily, when I was thinking about starting this podcast, I came up with like a hundred episode ideas. It was, and I was like, okay, well, I think I can make this work for a little while. So ideas are not ever my problem. And I think food bloggers in general have lots of ideas, but the problem is making sure that the ideas are the thing that you're that are going to kind of move the needle forward and are going to be the best use of your time. So I like to ask about every idea, blog post idea, is this idea going to serve my audience? Is this idea aligned with my brand messaging? So obviously if you're a dairy free blogger, you're not going to post like a cheese dip recipe Mm, like that, doesn't you know, align with your values and kind of your brand. And then the third question is, is this recipe going to do well on either SEO or Pinterest? So really making sure that you're kind of covering the whole spectrum and you don't necessarily have to have a yes for every single question, but really just thinking about like, I mean, you're really answering the question, is this a good idea? Is this idea worth my time? And so I kind of like to ask myself those three questions to make sure that it is a good use of my time. Those are great. But what are your thoughts about those ideas that we have that don't fall into any of those categories? Like if I'm saying no, no, no to all of your questions, but I really want to make a leafy salad with crispy kale, but my audience isn't going to like it. It's not going to align with my brand messaging and it probably won't do well on SEO. Do I do it anyway or do I not? I think it depends. And I know that's such like a cheap answer, but I think it depends on where you're at with your blog. Honestly, if you are, you know, let's say that you're in a job right now, a full-time job, and you're trying to get out of it. You're trying to grow your blog so that you can support your income so that you can get out of that job. I would say no. I would say that's not the best use of your time. And, and this is a kind of a big shift in how blogging used to be, but just because you create like make a recipe at home doesn't mean you have to share it. And I think that was a struggle for me on my food blog for a long time was like, I wanted to share everything that I was making, but so often the recipes that I was making for my family were not relevant to my audience for my food blog. And so I think you can do one of two things. One is that you could figure out how to make that recipe more in line with your brand messaging or more in line with something that you're you know, your readers would like, or 
make it just something that kind of adds that humanity back into maybe your Instagram. Maybe you just share it on Instagram stories that you're making this recipe and who knows, maybe it'll take off and people will love it. People will ask you for the recipe or people will want you to share it. And so sometimes some of those ideas that come to us that we think might not be a good idea, you know, end up being ideas that our audience is interested in. But I think, you know, like I said, all of us are kind of strapped for time and we're trying to make the biggest impact with our time. And so I think if you can't answer yes to those questions, at least to one of them, then my recommendation would be to not follow through with that idea and just to let that be something that you do for fun and just like know that that's okay. I think food bloggers, we just tend to work all the time and we forget that we can have lives that we don't have to share on our blogs, you know? I do every once in a while have that rogue recipe that I create where it doesn't fall into any of those questions at all, but I do it anyway and I post it and it goes crazy. And then I look back and I think, what in the world? That is not like anything I've ever done, but people are loving it. I have this, it's sauteed cabbage recipe and that really isn't my thing. Like I love veggies, I love salads, but people don't love me for that. But my sauteed cabbage went crazy and it was on the first page of Google for years. I don't know. When I think of new things that I want to put on my blog that maybe don't align with my brand, I think, well, sauteed cabbage, I never know. You never know. But I am getting to the point, and this took me a really long time to learn, but I am getting to the point now where I am scheduling out 2020 and I'm just doing comfort food. And I'm just going to see how that goes because people love me for my comfort food. And I spent 2019 and all previous years of blogging doing absolutely everything with a focus on comfort food. But I did include like everything else because sometimes there's that complimentary dish like we were talking about earlier, like a good leafy salad could really complement a comfort food dish or breadsticks, you know, but I am going to test that out and just kind of go with what you're saying And I want to serve my audience. I want to align with my brand and I want to do well with SEO or Pinterest or both. And I'm just going to test that out this year. So I kind of like that we're talking about this because I just made that decision a few weeks ago. I'm like, all right, comfort food it is, nothing else. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think there's definitely something to be said about like, this is your business. And this is, I mean, for a lot of us, it's also our hobby. You know, we don't always have a lot of times for other hobbies besides our food blog. And so there are going to be those times where you're just like, you know what, I don't care if this doesn't do well on Pinterest, or I don't care, you know, whatever, this is just something that I need to do for me. And that is totally okay. But I think when you are always just kind of going off of whatever random ideas pop into your head, which I have totally been there, then you might be finding yourself a year down the road, looking back and wondering why your blog hasn't grown but it's because there wasn't strategy put into place when you were planning your content and, you know, optimizing your website and all of those things. I'm glad you pointed that out because there is a huge difference in there's a huge difference between that random stuff that pops into our head and the stuff that maybe lights us up somehow, but we know that maybe our audience won't love it, but it still gives us a fire, you know, like we want to create it for some reason. That salad recipe just needs to be in this world and <laughs> out on our blogs. But there is a difference. Like you mentioned earlier, Madison, when you were blogging, that you would just like be creating something for your family and feel the need to put it on your blog. And I did that for so long. There were so many recipes that I was like, really? But I think we all do that. And then we have to find, finally get to that point where we 
you know, can kind of discern what is strategic and what is not. Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, it's just about what is going to make the most impact for your brand and, you know, ultimately for your business. And so I think just having that framework, at least to run things by, and then if you make a conscious decision, you know, I'm getting no's for all of these answers, but I just have to post this recipe, then you post that recipe. And that is totally okay. But again, it's like, if that's always how you're planning out your content, I think you're going to find six months are going to pass and you're not going to see a lot of growth, which can be really defeating. Yes. I think this it's like blog maturity. You get to a point where you kind of can look back and sort through all of this a little bit better. But starting out, I would say the first handful of years, anyone's blogging, it's really hard to know because you just want to put up content like crazy as much as you can. And I think we all went through that. Are there any other ways that you can talk to us about optimizing our content? Yeah. So when you're thinking specifically about changes that you can make to your website, you know, we kind of talked about already like the strategic content planning, I think adding content strategically to your site. So I think there's a lot of spots on your blog that are in general kind of overlooked as places that you can add content to. So, you know, I know everybody kind of wants short sidebars for, you know, ads and making the most RPMs and all of those sorts of things, but really think through is a shorter sidebar going to benefit me more than maybe showcasing a couple of those posts that I really want everyone to see, you know, maybe it's those those cornerstone content pieces that you've poured your heart and soul in and they really capture the heart of your blog and your brand. Maybe those are ones that you want to showcase. I've been working with my clients a lot on is categories and really optimizing those. I think a lot of people, a lot of food bloggers in general just tend to have kind of surface level categories. And I think it starts because, you know, at at the beginning of our blogs, we don't have a lot of content. So it's really easy to just have five categories and that covers everything. But as your blog grows, I'm finding from my clients that really having more deep categories really can help people find your content better. So a quick example is just like entrees. Maybe instead of just having entrees or main courses, you separate it out by the type of meat. So you're having chicken, turkey, beef, or vegetarian or whatever it is, but really thinking through strategically how is someone going to look at this content? I think when breadcrumbs came on the scene, everybody started using those without really necessarily thinking what they're for. And they're really for helping your audience find more content, but you really have to think about what content makes sense for them to find. So kind of what we were talking about earlier with the different types of ideas, if somebody is on, you know, your goulash recipe, does it make sense for them to find more comfort food recipes or more dinner recipes or kind of what is that like top level category that you want them to find more of those recipes, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's something that you could definitely test with too, right? I mean, you could test with what people are looking for and see how they're responding to it and change accordingly. And then as far as like your homepage, what are your thoughts on that and putting categories? You mentioned the sidebar, but do you recommend testing with categories on the homepage and what you display there? I know a lot of people do like the latest post and then like very generic. I think I have a generic dinner post and I've tried to experiment with that a little bit, but what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think 
your homepage is a huge spot for someone to really optimize that to not only cover kind of like what that brand messaging is and like the core of your brand. And it can be just in categories, but you know, you have to think about when someone lands on your homepage, most often it's because whatever blog post they landed on from Pinterest or Google resonated with them. So they came to the homepage or, you know, someone told them about the site. So they went directly to the homepage. So you kind of already have a little bit of buy-in with that person because they're not, most people are not coming from Google to your homepage. If they are, it's because they searched for your blog. So they, there's some recognition of your brand already. So then you really have to think about like, you know, what are kind of the core categories or the core blog posts that I want someone to see? I think, you know, the trend used to be to just have your latest posts as your blog. And that was it. And that I think we can both agree that that is not the trend at all anymore. Now it's really moving towards kind of a strategically designed homepage and really thinking through like, what would someone need to know at a glance about my blog? What kind of categories would they need to see? You know, I think something that I see food bloggers not doing a lot on their homepage is having a photo of themselves. And again, I think we kind of are stripping the humanity away from our Mm, blogs, but people want to see a face. They want to know who it is behind the lens. So that's a huge thing. But yeah, I really think utilizing categories, not just on your homepage, but really throughout your site in a more strategic way can really, it can help you grow your page views because if people are clicking around to more pages, that's going to give you more page views, more ad impressions. It's going to help Google to see that your site is, you know, you're having more dwell time on your site. There's just so many things that can come from, you know, really using those category pages and those category links to help people find the content that they're looking for. It's interesting concept to think that people who come to your homepage are taking the extra steps so that you should give them a little bit extra love and show them a little bit extra. I like that because we just assume that people come there all the time and that really is not the case. But I recently heard an SEO expert talking about this exact thing and he said something like, if you posted a hummus recipe and that was your latest post and that is like the first thing that's on your homepage and that's what people are clicking over to see. What if they don't like hummus? Then they're going to turn away quickly. So that really resonated with me. I was like, oh my gosh, I have been doing that forever, having just like a big latest photo right at the top of the page and you have to scroll forever to find any sort of categories. So just recently I've put top categories at the top of my page and I really like that. I I just like every time I go there, I'm like, okay, as a user, I would find this much more helpful. I have dinner, dessert, instant pot and party food. And I feel like anyone that really wants to be on my site can find something within one of those categories. So let's say I go into my appetizer category, like I'm actually clicking over to that. What are some ways within there that we can highlight things within the category. You know what I mean? Like, do you recommend writing a few sentences of text? Like here are my favorite recipes that are finger foods or what do you recommend doing within each category page? Yeah, definitely. I, I definitely recommend that. And I think, you know, just a caveat is to mention that not everything that is necessarily good for design or good for kind of audience building is going to be exactly what is good for SEO. You kind of really have to think strategically and figure out kind of what your goals are. Um, not to say that something that I would recommend for from a design perspective would be counter to SEO, but just 
again, there is kind of this trend in at the SEO world to kind of take out all the personality. And so what we're really talking about is how can you make Google happy with infusing that personality? So, you know, it's been a recommendation in the SEO world for a while to optimize your category pages. And so what that mostly means is giving Google kind of a description of what that page is, because if you don't have text on the page, all Google sees is a bunch of links. They're going to see it's going to see appetizers at the top and then the links to your six you know, posts that are displaying. And so you want to optimize that page by giving a description of what you can find within that category, which is also helpful for anyone that's on that page. Something that you can do is to make sure to link to content. It doesn't even have to be the top performing content, but maybe it is the top content of that category. So your absolute best appetizer recipes. And I think you can figure that out based on thinking about it through the lens of your audience and what would be, again, you know who your audience is, you know what they're struggling with. So what would the top three appetizer recipes for that specific person be? And those are the ones you're going to want to link to on your category page. Now, again, going back to the entree recipe example, if, if it's your entrees page or really any category that needs to be broken down further, maybe on that page, you know, if you don't want to go through the process of changing your like internal structure of your categories, maybe you just link to different types of recipes that kind of break down that bigger category into smaller categories um, that can be through like the actual site structure, you know, using child categories and things like that. But it can also just be by putting a call out there to say, hey, are you interested in searching entree recipes by type? Click here to see all chicken recipes, click here to see all turkey recipes, that sort of thing. So really using kind of the best of all of the worlds to like help Google understand your content better, but also help your audience understand your content better and find what is going to be the most helpful for them. Yeah, you really are trying to serve both just trying to figure out what is most useful for people and what is Google going to see too. Now, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, the sidebar, because the sidebar is seen all the time, whether people are coming through Pinterest to see one specific post or whether they're going to your homepage for whatever reason. I have been experimenting with my sidebar and currently have absolutely nothing on it besides my picture, a little intro about myself and ads because of site speed, because it was such an issue. I was like, take it all off. And I guess it doesn't bother me, but is that, what do you think that the user thinks of that? If they come and just see ads, should I be putting something else in there? Well, I think the other thing to remember too, is that actually everybody isn't going to see your sidebar because of so, because so much of traffic mobile. is mobile. Right. Yes. So you know, back in the day, the trend was more to put everything on your sidebar because everyone would see it, but that's just not really happening nowadays. So I just think it's, it's this perfect real estate spot. Like you said, it's seen on almost every page there. There is kind of a trend to have like a full width homepage too, but you know, even if your homepage is full width and every other blog post, you know, that could be hundreds, it could be thousands of blog posts has that sidebar. So if you don't have anything on it, you're kind of, you are losing the opportunity to kind of share information, whatever that information is. But, you know, you have to think about the ultimate benefit to it and what you might be sacrificing in site speed. I know when I was going through a lot of site speed, just changes and things like that, I had to ask myself, like one of the things that was coming up was my Instagram feed was slowing down my site, but I was going to gain like two seconds in dwelt or in a 
page load time by removing it. And so in that example, it was easy for me to just say, okay, yeah, I don't really need my Instagram feed to be on there. I'm just going to remove it. But in the case of your sidebar, if you're removing maybe other category links or popular posts, I think there's a lot of benefits to having those both from an SEO perspective and from a user perspective that it might be worth that slight increase in page speed time. But there's also just, there's so many different solutions for page speed. There are different plugins that you could use. There's, you know, hard code and get into the theme instead. You know, there's using text links instead of images. There's so many things that you can do. But I think what you said, you know, that you're testing it, I think that's what you have to do. I think so many people just hear advice from somebody and just go with it. They don't test or, you know, figure out, okay, this is what it was like before. And then I removed this. This is what happened. And again, I think that goes back to us all being busy and we just, we forget to even go back and look at it again. Yeah. I actually started using annotations in Google Analytics a couple of months ago. It's, it's basically, you just go in and make a note on Google Analytics. You know, it doesn't necessarily remind me to go check it again, but if on a wild hair, I remember, oh, I changed a thing. I want to go back and look at it. I have a note in Google Analytics and I'm not you know, going by memory to try to remember when I did something. So that's been really helpful. And just even adding it to your calendar, like a reminder in six months to go back and check this, because I think people forget to look back at their website and see how something was doing, or they remove something for quarter four because they want, you know, their ad revenue to go up and then they forget to add it back. You know, there's just so many things that... I know there is, there is so is. There are so many things that I've tested in the past that I just have completely forgotten about. I remembered I was doing some testing on some Pinterest pins back in August and I just remembered it the other day. I was like, oh my gosh, I completely forgot. So it's worthwhile to at least log that in a spreadsheet or write it somewhere because if it pops up later, you can just use that as a light bulb. Like, oh yeah, I need to go check that out. There's so many different things that you can test in food blogging with your blog and with social platforms and pin images. And oh my gosh, the list goes on and on. Yeah, it really is. You can test so many things. And, you know, I think without testing it, you just never, you really don't know. And I think going back, everything we've talked about, like you have to take it with a grain of salt. You really have to know your site. And I think that goes true for any advice that you hear about food blogging. You have to take it with a grain of salt and you have to make sure that it's the right decision for your blog and for your audience because these rules are generalized so that the, you know, the general population can apply them. But SEOs or designers or anything without looking at your specific site and your specific audience they may just be, you know, giving you advice that actually hurts your audience. You know, it might be good for Google, but it might be what your audience isn't looking for. So, yes, I love all of that, Madison. Are there any other ways that we can op- optimize or have we covered everything? You know, we talked about the brand messaging and kind of adding maybe content that would be specific to your brand messaging, but might not be a recipe. But I really think utilizing that brand messaging within your blog posts is really important. And I think that would make a really big impact with converting more people to your audience. Even just having a little blurb in your blog post about something that ties the recipe itself back to your brand messaging and why it matters. I think like instinctively we know why you came up with another, you know, 30 minute comfort meal, but if you can tie it back to the brand messaging and you can put it in a sentence that helps people connect the dots, I think that'll really help in building that readership and It also gives your audience a way to tell their friends about it. I have some friends that 
recently did Whole30 and immediately I knew the exact food blog they needed to go to because I know the brand messaging. It happens to be a client of mine too, but like I just knew this is the site you need to go to. She's going to have all of the recipes and the tips that you need. You know, I think it will help down the road when you maybe start thinking about digital products or, you know, physical products to just already have connected those dots. It's going to make it so much easier for you to convert someone from this innocent bystander on your website to your audience, you know, to a subscriber, eventually to a customer. It really is just setting the foundation for that growth. And I think we all have kind of, I mean, so many food bloggers kind of accidentally got into the business of food blogging, right? And so we're kind of playing catch up to figure out like, how do you make this a business? And I think, again, having that foundation, I just cannot overstress the importance of it. The quicker the food bloggers can focus on that brand messaging and figuring out how to articulate that to their audience, you know, the faster they're going to see results in terms of people sharing their content or commenting or engaging. I think we all are looking for more engagement and looking for people to kind of make this whole journey worth it. And having that brand messaging core is really going to help you do that. So finding what the brand messaging is, utilizing it, and then using it in everything that you do, everything that you write, every post that you put out, putting an ounce of it in there so that people are seeing that and connecting it with you, the brand, and the brand that you're creating. I recently started a welcome series, an email welcome series for my blog, which is crazy because I've never done it before. But someone I interviewed, Sarah Nelson from Real Balance, she's like an expert in email marketing and she totally had me fired up. So I just went after our last interview and I was like, I am doing this. I'm creating it. So one of the emails I put in that series was just like, tell me what you like. Reply to this email. Tell me what you like about my blog. Why are you here? What makes you connect with me? And I've had a lot of people reply they will reply and they'll say, I, I like your dinners or I really like that they're easy. I like that you talk about your family. Like, so that has really helped me. And I've been doing this for a really long time. And I'm like, this is the first time I really put it out there. Like, what do you what do you want from me? And not in not an in Instagram or any other platform, but on my blog, like reply to me now and tell me. I mean, just something as easy as that, like incorporating it into your welcome series and just like really asking people directly to reply to you and tell you. And that's really helped me because like we've been talking about Madison, I feel like I've been a robot for so many years. Like I have to do exactly what everyone else is doing as far as SEO and I have to strip away all my personality. But having that input from readers, now I've been like, okay, they want to hear about my family. And that doesn't mean I have to go on and say, you know, a ton about it, but just like incorporating that little by little into each post, I now feel kind of validated again, like, okay, this is okay. And this is good. Right. And you know, again, going back to the engagement thing, it like blogging just used to be so different. You used to get comments on your blog and you used to know like somebody's actually out there reading this. And so I think the reason we're not seeing as much engagement, there's a lot of different reasons, but I think one reason again is stripping all that personality out and you're not really giving someone anything to reply to, you know, anything to say, to raise their hands to and say, yes, I totally resonate with this. Like I'm the same way. So the more we can start infusing that. And, you know, the other thing to remember is 
there's a rule in marketing that says someone has to see something seven times before they take action. And I think as food bloggers, we often think like take action. That means like selling. I'm not selling anything, but we really are selling something. We're just not exchanging dollars for it. But when we're get, trying to get someone to subscribe to our email list or even just trying to have someone spend the time to be on our website or to make our recipe, you're asking something of someone. So when you can like make that bridge smaller for them to like raise their hand and take action, it's going to make a huge difference. Things have changed so much, like you pointed out. And I think that we're all just kind of evolving with that change. And it's been a massive change. Things were way different back when we used to do giveaways on our blogs and we used to get hundreds of comments for a single post. And it's just not the same anymore. So we're in those waters of just figuring out how to navigate through this new kind of blog world. And I think that I always say this, that people who start blogging have started recently, like within the past couple of years, I believe actually have an advantage because they don't have to go back and redo the structure for all of their old content because they can, they've started out and they're like, okay, this is how it is. Whereas when I started, it was, nobody knew what we were doing and we just had to figure it out. And now things are so drastically different that we have to go back and change a lot of the structure that we built. So we're just, I think all of us are just trying to figure out how do we get recognized by the user? How do we get seen by Google? How do we please them and also feel satisfied ourselves? The big question of the decade, right? Exactly. And you know, it's a journey. It's, it takes time to figure out the answer. And once you do, something will change and you'll have to figure it out again. And absolutely it will change again. So don't get too comfortable. (laughs) So I, I think it's really important to just have this foundation in place and just to, like you said, try to infuse it into everything that you do. I think it's going to make it easier to connect with your audience. And ultimately, that's what we're all looking to do. It may come in the form of, you know, a larger audience so that we can get brand sponsorships or so we can make more money through ads. But we have to have people to do that. And so we have to figure out a way to connect with those people. And I truly believe that brand messaging is the key to doing that. So bottom line, be a human, allow yourself to show that you're a human, don't succumb and be a total robot and just allow yourself to shine through and everything that you do. But I mean, you know, we also have to do those things to keep Google and the user coming back, but just keep that human part of yourself as a part of your blog. I think that's really important. So before I ask you about your download that you're going to kind of guide people through your brand messaging framework, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to discuss before we do that? I think we've covered pretty much all of it. I would say that if you, you know, if your listeners are listening to this and feeling kind of overwhelmed and feeling like I have no idea what my brand messaging is, I am happy to chat with them. I, like I said, I'm I'm an ideas person. So if you're struggling with ideas, there's a really good chance that I would be able to help you with ideas. And, you know, your listeners can reach out to me on Instagram just to do that in a casual setting. But I'm happy to help people think through those ideas because I think, you know, part of my job as a brand designer is really pulling out what is already kind of inside of you and figuring out that messaging that you already know and you already talk about, but maybe you haven't realized is like so natural to you so that you can start like building those brand messaging, you know, that brand messaging content and just sharing it confidently. 
Well, that's awesome that you made that offer. Thank you, Madison. So you have put together a download that will help guide people through what your brand messaging framework is so that they can get their messaging in place. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, one of the kind of first things that I do with a client when I'm working with them on either branding or kind of web design is really thinking through the strategy. And I think that starts with your brand messaging. So this is really the the framework that I walk my clients through. And it will help you figure out, you know, what that niche is for you, kind of what that specialty is within that niche. So what makes you unique within that kind of bigger, bigger niche, and then kind of what those brand messaging pillar content statements are going to be for your brand so that you can start sharing those with confidence and you can start implementing those into your website. And I will have a couple of examples of, you know, ways that you can implement that brand messaging into your website you know, whether it's through like your website design or it's just through the writing and the photography and kind of all of the visual elements of your blog. Awesome. Well, I will have all of that in your show notes page, Madison, so everyone can find that there. I just want to thank you for being here today and taking time and sharing such value with food bloggers about this topic. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's as you can tell, I love talking about this. So I hope that it has been helpful for your listeners. It's inspiring. Definitely. So before you go, share with us a favorite quote or words of inspiration for food bloggers. So this quote actually came, I was listening to an audio book. It's the book Free to Focus by Michael Hyatt. But the original quote actually comes from Andy Stanley. And the quote is, everybody ends up somewhere in life. A few people end up somewhere on purpose. Those are the ones with vision. And I chose this quote. It's I've actually ended like the last three of my podcast episodes with this quote because it just really spoke to me. I think this year has been the first of hopefully many years of just really going through my business with purpose. And so I hope that food bloggers can relate to that as well. Oh, I love that so much. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, As I mentioned, Madison has a list of resources relating to everything we talked about today, including that framework that we talked about. These can be found on her show notes page at eatblogtalk.com forward slash Madison W. Madison, tell my listeners the best place to find you online. So I would love if this episode resonated with you, I would love for you to check out my podcast. It is the Vine podcast and you can find that in your podcast player or by going to thevinepodcast.com. If you are looking for branding or web design support, my website for that is graceandvinestudios.com. And I'm over on Instagram at graceandvine. Thank you so much, Madison, for being here today. And thank you for listening today, food bloggers. I will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed it, I would love for you to screenshot it and share it with a friend. You can tag me on Instagram stories at Grace and Vine. For the show notes for this episode, head to thevinepodcast.com. Talk soon.